0: everybody, it's Megan. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I am really excited to introduce you to my friend Carrie Schmidt. Carrie is a mom who lost her seven-year-old son to a rare form of cancer. And she sat with me a few weeks ago to discuss what that felt like then, what that feels like now. This conversation is just brutally, gorgeous. Carrie is so generous with us about her learnings and her experience. I think this one's really going to touch your heart. Thanks for being with us. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am so delighted this morning to be introducing you to my friend, Carrie Schmidt. Carrie and I met in a writer's circle that formed off a platform called Her View From Home, where she and I have both had writing published. We were just talking about it. We sort of come to writing at, this, at in the same way. Which is wouldn't have described it as our primary skill set or the thing that we were called to do on this earth, but actually love doing it as part of our own therapeutic process and have been really grateful to understand that other people really relate to the writing. So, Carrie, thank mm-hmm. you so much for being here. There's so much going on in your life right now, and making time for us this morning is really special.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. And yes, I do have a lot going on in life, but I don't want to lose track of the things that make my heart beat. And talking about my son is definitely one of those things. And because life is so chaotic, I'm probably not giving my grief the attention that it needs. And so I feel like sometimes when I don't take the time or don't process or not necessarily ignore it, but when I don't give it the attention that I feel like it needs, I sometimes pay the price for that. So I, you know, our therapist calls it um, doing cave work, going into the cave. And so, you know, you learn how to go into that dark place, but then you learn how to come back out and, and stay, you know, not in the cave all the time. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I consider this cave work today.
0: I love that. God cave work. I'm going to keep that. That's a good one. Okay. I know a bit of your story. We were just sort of talking off audio a minute ago. I know your story because you were a really active member in one of my early grief mates, which for the listeners, just a reminder that I have the free writing course that you can get to on griefismysidehustle.com where you get writing prompts. And I got to read your story and see your gorgeous writing, but will you just give us a sense of the loss that you're carrying just help us know that story
1: yes definitely well i am married to mike smith we just had celebrated our 11th anniversary while he was in the hospital and together we have two sons jackson who is forever seven and ivan who is five and a half you know may 2019 my son jackson started complaining of knee pain and so we were going to the doctor emergency room specialist, and they just weren't really figuring out what was going on with his leg. And I was also a surrogate at the time and had a beautiful, beautiful pregnancy. It was a match made in heaven. Everything about the process was absolutely perfect. And Jackson actually got to meet the baby, which is such a beautiful blessing. So I gave birth on July 8th, 2019. And Six days later, I thought I was taking Jackson to the hospital because he was dehydrated. He had gotten a stomach bug and we just thought, you know, well, let's go to the ER and get him some fluids. And I mean, we knew that something was off his leg, but it didn't seem like that was what was taking us there. And so we got transferred to our local children's hospital and that day, July 14th we found out that Jackson had a nine inch tumor and a steamer and had already had multiple strokes. And when the doctor came in, I will never for the life of me ever forget that lady, what she was wearing, how she said it. I actually felt like I hated her, even though there was no way to say it, you know, couldn't sugarcoat something like that. My husband and I were just shaking our heads like, how does a seven year old have multiple strokes? I mean, I've never really heard of that. And so he was in the ICU. And two days later, the, the doctor said, you know, you know, if he has another big stroke, he could die. And that was the first time that that thought had even entered our mind that he wasn't going to survive. And so in the span of six days, he ended up having a total of six strokes. And we were told at 3 a.m. on Saturday, July 20th that there was thing more that they could do because I don't know. I'm so, it's hard because I, I sort of matter of fact about it and I don't mean for it to sound like I'm like a cold person, but it's just, you know, sometimes you just have to give like the canned version of it. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like just because it's hard, it's you know, but they said that there was nothing more they could do. And so at that point we had to bring our son who was three and a half at the time we hadn't brought him up to the hospital yet because we were hoping that Jackson was going to recover and we didn't want him to see him with lots of tubes and things like that but we knew that we needed to give him the opportunity to say goodbye to his brother and thankfully the child life specialist at the hospital really helped us because I had to put my hands up and say Mm -hmm. I do not know how to do this this is terrible and so at that point, they said, because of his age, you have to be very concrete. You cannot use fluffy terms. You can't say he passed away or he's sleeping. You know, sometimes we want to kind of be protective yeah. and, and not say those hard words that they said, you have to say that he died and that his body doesn't work anymore. And so when he brought him in the room, his wheels were turning. I mean, you could totally see it. He wanted to see him. He wanted to touch him and we let him do all that. He, we let him be a part of the memorial, you know, like where we had his handprints and stuff like that. And at the time I was kind of like, oh my gosh, am I totally crazy for doing this? But I'm like, you know, one time opportunity, we do not get to do this again. And I did not want to later have, I don't know how I had that Wherewithal to yeah. even think like that, I really don't know, but in twelve hours later, he took his last last breath, and Ugh. to say that we were soft is putting it mildly. Our shock certainly carried us through the first year. I mean, it was just like we just couldn't believe it, and I just kept having to say it over and over again because I just could not make sense of it. I just was like, and and Ivan, like I said, he was three and a half, and so developmentally, like he really didn't totally get it. He he got it. But, you know, all the statistics I've read say that they don't really understand the permanence of death until they're four and a half. And I mean to tell you, like clockwork, after one year, he started to realize his brother wasn't going to come back. And that trauma for him was he had debilitating anxiety he was terrified that I wasn't going to come back just like his brother did.
0: yeah
1: and and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that when I would leave or like a couple months later when he started school he would ask me 200 times the night before school mom are you gonna come back and get me are you gonna come back and get me and then the morning of school a hundred times mom are you gonna come back and get me And then they'd have to take him out of my arms crying. It was so terrible. And I was asking his therapist, like, should I do this? Should I not? I mean, it was like, I just needed guidance with like every step because absolutely none of it felt normal. None of it felt right. But having a therapist to ask those questions, like, is this normal? Should I be worried? Is he going to be a serial killer? I mean, I was nervous because I'm like, those things can seriously have a a profound effect on a child and I kind of get upset with the idea that they say children are so resilient and yes they are but a lot of times they can be pretty traumatized by those things and and I feel like this situation really kind of showed me that we can be somewhat dismissive of a child's mental health yeah and you know I don't have any control over what happens to Ivan when he becomes a grown-up but for right now I can do anything I possibly can to help him and give him the tools to become, you know, as productive. And he's already such an empathetic child. And I know that this has made him more empathetic because he does think about others a lot for his age. You know, so
0: there's so much about what you're talking about that it was just like sprinkling across my thought patterns. That sentence that you just said, which is like, of co- you know, of course, children can be traumatized. It, what we know in trauma work is it's not the event. I mean, anyone would be crushed by losing their brother. It's the meaning that you make of the event. And there's some of those things that you're describing, which are developmentally totally appropriate. Any kid going to preschool might cry for their mom because they don't know what this you know, attachment issue means. But yeah. what is totally out of normal, typical, average behavior is for a preschooler to understand that children can die. You know, that's the space that a mom and a therapist and teachers have to come in and help. With the right developmental perspective, and I love that you had that child life person there to give mm. you, you know, just listen. This is not instinctive. You're going to want to protect him. You, can, if you protect him, you're going to hurt him. You actually need to use these really hard words. But I have to tell you, Carrie, the thing that I am most struck by in this conversation, and it really is like as a person, not a therapist, is this impossible dynamic where you have to be the mother who loses your child and in this impossible way. Part of the reason I wanted you on is your story is the story people can't hear. Your story is so terrifying to every mother out there that that they're going to say, I would never live through it. I don't know what I would do. And what I say to grievers all the time is every fucking one of us feels that way. But somehow- We live through it. There is this thing in humanity where somehow we survive untenable loss. So, and you are describing it. And I really do appreciate when you said, you know, I don't mean to be unfeeling when I'm describing it. One of the things we know in grief work is you have to lock in your narrative because you can't go through it. Over and over and over again. When I go out to organizations that have had like an active shooter, or I do consultations with folks where there was a suicide in their office, you know, what I tell them is you cannot retell this story over and over again. You're re traumatizing Mm -hmm. yourself. You need to lock in a narrative that doesn't activate you too much so that you can move past the narrative into living with loss. And that takes some yeah. time, right? Like that thing where you said, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I had to say it all the time. I spent a year after my mom died, a whole year, every night saying to my husband before we went to bed, I can't believe she died. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I didn't know that she died. I just couldn't fucking believe she died.
1: <laughs> and so it was me. like I was updating,
0: know. right? Like updating the computer. I was having that one moment of like, "I no, no, I understand where we're at in life. But there is a part of me that is has not caught up with this reality. And I just need to like wave to it out the window. Like, I know, buddy, you and me both.
1: Yeah, and you just have to unfortunately kind of like relive it like every day. I will, the day after he died, I woke up and looked in the mirror and screamed the most guttural scream, like a sound that is unimaginable. And Mike was like, oh my gosh. And I was just like, no, I mean, I just three days in a row, I did that. And then I still, it's not every day, but some days I do that same thing where I open my eyes and you have, you know, mirror, uh, mirror closet doors. I'm like, no, I still can't yeah. believe it. I still cannot believe it. And it, it, I mean, just, it is an unbelievable
0: story. That's the thing. Like it's the, so I'm sure you have many experiences with people who have accidentally bashed you around because again, your story is the one no one wants to get close to because it is too fucking scary.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because just a little bit of background. So I had actually been an advocate for St. Baldrick's, which raises money for childhood cancer research since 2015, because I couldn't imagine having a child with cancer. I shaved my head three years in a row. And then Jackson saved his head four months before he died, most likely had cancer at the time. And then I decided three months after Jackson died, woke up like with conviction that I needed to have a St. Baldrick's in his memory at his school because his death was the first death in 25 years at the school. And I was like, I need to educate this community about childhood cancer and how underfunded it is and stuff like that. So St. Baldrick's asked if they could actually share my story on the national level because of just how strange it was. Oh, unbelievable, I guess. Not strange. Unbelievable. So they shared it to the she, She Knows and then Yahoo picked it up. Yeah. And so when it got shared to Yahoo, there were some people on there that actually said that they didn't believe it. They said they thought it was made up. And at first I got a little bit irritated, but I'm thinking who the hell would make up a story like that? That's a horrible thing, you know? But then it was like, wow, I guess it really is that unbelievable. Like, you know, we, there's times where I'll tell the story and I know it's crazy, but it's my story. And it brings tears to people's eyes every single time I tell people. It's
0: too hard. It's too hard. And, and again, you know, I think what, what we have in the, in our culture, which maybe doesn't exist in every culture is this just like desperate, desperate fear of talking yeah. about, like, we're going to catch it like a virus or it's going to jinx right. us, be closer to us. And I know, you know, cause you follow my work that, you know, I'm really passionate about the idea of having more conversations, you know, having classes in college, just advocacy around even the example of what just happened to you, which we can tell our listeners is, you know, and working on a class with some folks at Mount Holyoke on this, you know, your brain doesn't behave in the way that it normally used to. When you go through a really traumatic loss, things like your hippocampus and your hypothalamus and, you know, your entire limbic system is sort of, it rings like a Tibetan gong. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing about a Tibetan bell is that it like rings for hours and hours. After my dad died, my mom would say to me, did that happen before or after? One time we sat down and wrote it out like in a timeline and still neither of us could remember. And for me, that's remarkable because I remember everything that's part of the shtick of why I'm a therapist. Like it just imprints really well, but trauma imprints differently in your brain. So
1: tell me I literally. I no, no, literally do not remember most of about three months after Jackson died. I look back and I'm like, well, I think I haven't got a bath during that time. But I was literally going through the motion. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't know how our power didn't get turned off or you know what I mean? It was like, holy smokes. Yeah. I mean, I just I don't even know how I was functioning. And I, I wasn't very what's well. What's extraordinary
0: about that though? And I've heard that so many times from people again, is when we're talking about how afraid we are of grief and loss, when we're talking about how terrifying death is, we have all these examples of people who somehow, even though they don't remember, kept living, that they somehow mm-hmm. still manage. There's a, there's a chapter in my memoir that. You know, I I have to get from here to there. My mom dies and I get home. And what I know, because I drove in that car with my husband and my children, that I had panic attacks the entire way home. And I kept pulling on the door like I was going to open the door on the highway. I had no concrete memory of that. Eventually, I ended up being sedated in the car so that I wouldn't like literally put everyone's lives at risk. So I know what happened because I believe it but I didn't have right. any visceral memory of it. And the other day I just sort of woke up and was like, oh my God, I remember. I remember crying on the side of the road. I remember. And that has sort of gelled along with some other things that a little bit feel like they're healing,
1: which is uh-huh. just fascinating
0: to me. I don't think you ever really recover from loss. I, I don't think that's the goal. I think you learn to carry the loss as a new part of you and you know, something mm-hmm. that's a burden, but just like if I was carrying something, my muscles would grow and it would feel less heavy. And I do think there are things that we can do that help us. You've mentioned therapy. Tell me how have you navigated from then until today?
1: Oh boy, you know, it's so funny. Like, so we have a grief support group and then we also have grief therapy. And I personally am a big fan of therapy. I'm not saying that to be a brown noser or anything like that. I just, (laughs) you can hate grief. I think everybody needs it, honestly. And I, but I think, like, well, why wouldn't you if it was available? But our grief therapist, he says, talking about your grief is kind of like touching a hot stove, you know? And it's like, not everybody, wants to do that but I guess I just kind of feel like well me not talking about it doesn't make it go away and it doesn't make it less and it's like I want all the tools I can possibly have to be honest I've been kind of caught red-handed wanting to um hurry up and kind of just you know get through it and tie a bow on it and set it on its way so I don't have to keep doing this because I'm like who in their right mind would like
0: want to keep doing this
1: this. state? Yeah, it's terrible, you know, you know, I know that losing a child can destroy a marriage. And thankfully, Mike and I um, have grown stronger through this. And I think so much of that is we've learned how to let each other grieve in our own way and not judge how each other grieves. I see it in various different groups. Where you know people kind of get mad at each other for either how they are grieving or how they're not grieving, and I feel like that's like one of the things that has really kind of helped Mike and I. And it's hard. We have a young child who requires a lot of attention, so we don't really get a lot of time to talk about our feelings. And you know, Ivan wants to look at pictures and videos of him, and sometimes that's hard because you know, those pictures and, and memories and stuff uh, are painful, but I just really tried so hard to, if I've been asked to do something, I do it, even though yeah. it's hard for me, because, you know, we've been such an open book that like, you can't just pick and choose those kind of things, you know, and, and he has his own process too. I mean, I remember after Jackson died, He'd be playing with Play-Doh and he'd say, mom, does Justin still have a tongue? And I'm like, what? Like, oh, "Oh, brutal, isn't it? Right. But then it was like, he would just get back to playing, you know, and that's like one of the things I learned about the way children grieve. They don't sit and be sad like us, you know, they kind of do it in verse. And so it was like, I had to be kind of prepared for whenever, well, I was never prepared (laughs) to be honest for when he would coming out of out of nowhere it always took me a little while but I'm like you know he got to a point where he wanted to wear his clothes and yeah. and I was like no that was like a vault that I had closed but then I was like well that's his process you know that's what he wants to do to make his make himself you know feel closer to his brother and so I was like okay well I guess I mean that's kind of how I feel like I do everything now it's like <laughs> okay if we have to you know and But, you know, I always see so much. um, I do (laughs)
0: think, I mean, I just want to say this to you, my kids are older, they're 13, 11 and nine. And when my mom died, a good friend of mine was like, listen, you need to be careful with your kids because they're going to go back to life really fast because we were on summer vacation, you know, ice cream, swimming. And he was like, they're going to be ready to do that. And you're not, and you're going to hate them. And, and he knew because he had lost his wife and his mom sort of not so long ago, I, I have a master's degree in child development. I understand how children's brains work, but that, that bifurcation, right. Of like, you are the mother to a son who died and mm-hmm. the mother to a living son. I've got a lot of kind of codependent stuff that runs in my bones, but I found having to show up for my children. It was the beginning of the school year. There were a lot of needs, pencil cases, new shoes, like next to impossible. I felt like I could do one or the other, but, and, and I did some inpatient work. So really I, you know, I did do one. I really did leave my husband, like holding all the threads of our life because if I focused on them, I disappeared in that and, and the pain was mine, not theirs. And so it felt like not, not a competition, but when you were describing marriages and how they implode, that makes so much sense to me, because how can you have two people at the exact same time needing all of the support of their partner who is going through the exact same thing? I mean, it feels impossible
1: Yeah, and you know, you said something that I think I just realized for the first time. You know, there there's these comments that people will make, well, at least you still have another kid or whatever. And thankfully people haven't said stuff like that too much to me. But I think I did resent him in some ways, even though obviously I was so so thankful for him. But I'm like, I can't even think straight. He hated it when I just cried all the time. He never forget one time I was crying, we were watching videos and Stuff, and I started bawling and he like punched me in the face and he's like stop crying!" I'm like I can't stop you know like I just couldn't stop and and then just about two weeks ago for the first time we were listening to a song that has so much meaning We Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Mike used to sing that to Jackson and Ivan before bed and then we have the sweetest video of Jackson singing it and then at his service We um, had a picture slideshow to Sweet Child of Mine and then showed the little video. And it was so beautiful. And you'd be surprised if you know this too, how often you would hear a 30 something year old song. I'm like, really, do I have to hear it? I'm going to hear it
0: within the next 24 hours, I promise you, because you just- Guaranteed,
1: guaranteed, yes. But that, I even asked to listen to that song and I said, okay, we can. (laughs) And then he goes, mom, it's okay if you need to cry. And I was like, did <laughs> I really cried because I was like, oh my gosh, like it was like he finally, you know, was okay enough with it, I guess. I don't know, but it, it was just like it meant. Well, and so the thing, much.
0: the thing with kids is they continue to grow into the grief developmentally right and so like he's going to have a different level i did a beautiful podcast with my friend paulo kane he was 15 when his brother died and his brother was 17 and he talked about what it's been like to sort of continually lose the relationship right like what would it be like to be 50 year old brothers together and and you realize like that is what kids are doing Particularly when they're talking about a sibling is the life, the castles in the air, just like parents, but they're different for kids of what they would have wanted and continued to be connected to with their sibling and kind of like they're not aware of what's going on with us. We can't know that until they say it out loud and let us know it. And I did a podcast, which I haven't put out yet with my kids the other day. And I said, you know, they were with me. They were in the car when I found out that my mom died. And they came with me to visit my dad 10 days before he died. My dad died three years, three years ago, almost four. And I just asked them about it. I said, I want to interview you like a podcaster. And What was remarkable to me is when, when I learned that my mother had died, I was driving a car and I was pulling over and trying to be really calm. And my daughter who was 11, she's now 13 was like, mom, are you okay? And I was like, I am not okay. And she said, do you want me to help you box breathe? And I was like, oh my God, Lucy, yes, please. So she did that. I know. I I mean, it makes me want to cry. I mean, I had given her that tool because she needed it for some anxiety that she was having. So she boxed breathed me to the side of the road. And and to me, that is like this seminal moment of when she took care of me. And I had a lot of worry because I had such profound PTSD that I was like not showing up for them as a mom. I have some childhood Mm -hmm. trauma. This is gonna be their childhood trauma. This is gonna Mm -hmm. be what they don't recover from. And I asked her, I said, do you guys remember being in the car? Do you remember what happened? They're talking, the boys are talking about Pokemon cards, which I expected. And Lucy didn't say anything. And I said, do you remember box breathing with me? And she was like, no, I don't remember it at all. And it would just like blew my skull open, right? You and I have talked about this concept of resiliency, which I really don't love that word because I feel like it's a word that it's turned into this thing, which is like something you're supposed to be. And if you aren't, you're kind of failing, What I think is a sort of a better concept is is the idea of like, what does recovery look like? Like how quickly Mm -hmm. are you able to sort of get back into connection and recovery? And so what I knew about in that moment is, oh my God, you know, she wasn't as terrified as I was. She Mm -hmm. boxed, breathed with me and she calmed herself down that I was able to show up enough, right? Mm -hmm. I have enough tattooed on my wrist. Like I was able to show up enough that that moment for her was not her seminal childhood moment of terror. She didn't even remember the thing that she did that to me, it was the indicator of like, oh my God, the child is taking care of the mom. And and so knowing that you have a little guy who's processing this, he's gonna continue to process it alongside you. And you right. guys do it in tandem. You end up sitting on the couch together crying and he says, that's okay. Or he says, that's not okay. And you still have to figure your way forward.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I think back to how terribly difficult it was to be parenting. Well, I call it PWG parenting while grieving. I've actually written a couple articles yeah. about it and how yeah. it's just so hard. It feels so So impossible because your mind in the beginning, you can't think about anything else. I mean, you just can't think about anything else. And I always say if, if the rest of my life was going to be the way the first three months was, I don't believe I would want to still be living because it was just like someone was playing my heart every minute of the day. You know, I've heard it said it doesn't get better. It gets different. I've also heard it doesn't get better. You get stronger. And both of which I can agree with, because it's not easier. The second year has not been easier. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. we, you know, they say the first year so hard and it was like, it was like a year and I'm like, yay, I did it. Can I have my old life back now? (laughs) And it was like, oh, it, this is just the beginning like this is yeah you know the
0: other thing i want to say because i i really think it's important to like tell the truth is traumatic loss does destroy some people that we lose yeah. people to addiction, they isolate, they never recover. So the thing that you're talking about, which are some of those adages that people, you know, it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Most of us who are in the grief world are like, please stop saying all of those terrible phrases, yeah. those terrible words. But I also, you know, and you and I talked a little bit about this off mic, like it, it's not a given. Th- there's a phrase which I also sort of hate, but I like it because I think it's true we need to keep growing. We need to keep living. And the phrase is traumatic growth, right? That, that like mm-hmm. the trauma, the event happens, but it doesn't become where your life ends and that right. you grow on forward. And hopefully like with most things in your life, there will be big threads of that event that you look at and say, goodness came from this, but that is yes. not everyone's story. That is yeah, not I everyone's always- story.
1: Yes. And I always have to say this, because like I said, I felt like a lunatic. Like when I was thinking like, oh yeah, I'm going to have a St. Baldur's event. I'm like, people probably think I'm off my rocker, but I'm like, well, the truth is in some ways I am, but early on there was the day after our son died, our children's pastor from our church drove from Oklahoma to St. Louis to come and talk with us and just, share some you know words and he said you know he's seen lots of people who've lost children and he said he sees them go one of two ways they either become angry and bitter and shut down otherwise they might you know find ways to honor their child and learn how to have joy and grief at the same time and I mean tell you the minute he said that I said that's where I'm going that's what I'm doing I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And then, two weeks after Jackson died, the backpack that I bought him for school came in the mail and about killed me. And I'm like, I do not want to sit here and look at this empty backpack because it makes me so sad. Because school started like three weeks after he died, and that was absolutely the first day of school is always going to be so brutal for me because he loves school. But I was like, you know what, maybe I'm just going to try to give it to some of his friends at school and see if they would want to use his backpack. And nobody really wanted to, so it made them too sad. And I said, all right, I'm just going to fill up the backpack with supplies, send it up there to the school so someone who really needs it can use it. Well, then that ended up turning into uh, a backpack and school supply drive where people donated and we raised we we collected 125 backpacks and 30 of those were full of supplies and we gave them to a local school that was in a kind of an underprivileged area and then it was like it was five weeks after Jackson died and I look back at pictures where I me look totally unrecognizable to myself I'm sure sure. but I'm like you know what that does not take the pain away but it does lessen the sting even just a tiny bit because I'm sharing this story I'm honoring him I'm a very busy hands-on active mom and you can't just have two children and take full-time care of them and then have one of your child is gone one of your children is gone and I knew what I was doing I knew I was trying to be busy and distracted because it hurt too much I always was looking for anything that would make it hurt a little bit less and I found out that those things actually do kind of you know and so things just kind of started to unravel on their own like it was like I was not doing much things just kept landing in my lap and so I'm like I'm just going to go with it. Like, I'm just going to go with it. I, I
0: love the idea. I read this in a book once where it was like, you know, if everything is fa- false to shit, you have permission to like do the thing that hurts the least. Like mm. that's what you've earned is do the thing that hurts mm. the least. And yeah. I love the idea that you went into this, this backpack is hurting me. I need to do something with this backpack I also really believe, I don't have like a big spiritual organizational lecture I can give, but I really do believe (laughs) that there's energy that sort of begets energy. And, and, and so those stories, when people are, I was feeling this way and then this unbelievable thing happened. I'm sort of, I, you know, I think the way I think about it is, well, your, your energy drew what it needed towards it in order to kind of process through So the notion that I know you didn't do all those backpacks totally on your own. I think there were other people who needed, you know, who needed to be in that energy. And, and, you know, part of what we talk about on this podcast is how do we grieve? What are the activities? And you've described a number of things, talking to a pastor, you know, doing a donation. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that you were already an advocate for childhood cancer and that your son had shaved his head for that. I mean, it, the irony of it, it's like if, if you that in a movie, people would be like that details a little over the top, don't you think? Like, You know, just kind of too much. But it made me it made me think that when I was I traveled out west with my family in the fall and I had this one really long drive where I wasn't in PTSD mind, but like I was really looping on that idea that I ruminate on. And every time I say this, somebody will reach out to me because they don't want me to have to feel this way but I hold some ownership of my mom dying. And I understand intellectually that it is not my fault. And I feel like it is. And I'm not sure if that's ever going to let me go. That just is right. the truth for me. And I'm, I'm okay with it. You know, right. so I was in this space in my head where I was, why didn't I do this differently? Why didn't I do this differently? And we got to the hotel and it was kind of late and the kids went upstairs And when we went upstairs, there weren't enough pillows. And so I, you know, I'll go downstairs and get more pillows. And when I got downstairs, the lobby that had been empty was now filled with people. So I was, don't worry about it. The guy was really harried. I'll just stand here. So I sort of stood off to the corner and this woman came in and she had this energy about her that like drew, I started to pay attention to her and the guy's all friendly. And he's like, oh, what are you in town for? And she said, my mother just died. Oh my God. Of course she did. Oh my God. And I was so, I was so stunned by it that I didn't say anything. I couldn't do anything in the moment. It was also COVID. So nobody was allowed to be close to each other. And she walked away and I felt this immense grief that I had done nothing. I had not connected to her in any way, but I knew we were soul sisters. And so when I went up to get the pillows, I said to the guy, what is her room number? Can I pay for her room? And so I, and it was just totally impulsive. I mean, it was not an expensive hotel. It was like a business side of the road motel, but that totally shifted for me. Right. And then I, I didn't even tell my husband when, when I do those kinds of things, I have this weird sort of residual energy of you're not supposed to tell people you did this because then they're going to appreciate you for it. And it's going to seem like you're doing something for good. And it strips away the positive of it. But I did end up writing about it because I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was one of my pieces that went all over the place. People from all over the place responded to it. And people from all over the place said, I did something similar. And I, and then what I really understood was that some of my grieving is giving, that some of what I need to do with my grief is to take the bad in my mother's name or in my father's name or whatever, and sort of transform it. Maybe it will land somewhere else and be good. Yeah. I and mean, I did also have this conversation with the guy behind the front desk who it ended up being really meaningful to him, really meaningful to his wife. It really probably always was. I needed it to be more than just paying for this woman's room because I
1: didn't even yeah. really
0: understand why I did that. I, it didn't even make sense to me what I was doing. By the time people came back to me and said, that was so meaningful to me. Let me tell you why. I was like, I think that's what it was. It was this desire to be connected to a larger energy of healing and moving forward and loving on each other when we're carrying the impossible stuff.
1: You know, it's funny. I get real kind of squirmish. I don't really like to have a lot of acknowledgement really for doing any of the, th- of the things that I do because it's not all me you know I feel like it's Jackson and my husband says this a lot that you know Jackson is like working through you and and this is how I bestow my love on Jackson and this is how you know I I share his story and I've said I've gotten really good at putting a bow on a pile of shit
0: yeah
1: I remember I think it was some painful day or holiday. Oh, his birthday! We some friends got put some money together and had a brick engraved with his name that they placed at the zoo. Mm. And so we went and saw it on his birthday, and it was a it was a terrible day. I mean, it was terrible. My son would have been nine. I who wants to celebrate their child's birthday without him? And at the end of the day, I said, you know, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Yeah, it still absolutely sucks. You know, I could try to call it what it is, and you know, make all these. State Baldrick's and this, that and the other, but it's still horrendous. And I would hand any of, and all of it back in a hot second, if I could have my son back, but, you know, it's part of the process that has mm, kind of forced me into acceptance, you know, like, well, he's not coming back, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there, there were times where I'd, still felt like maybe I'd
0: still see him walk down the hallway and it's so terrible moments where I actually shortly after my dad died I saw I like followed a guy because I was like I don't I feel like that could be my dad I mean my dad had such a strange body shape but those hauntings I think are also you know harbingers letting us know that we're thinking about them in a certain kind of way. And when you're talking about the birthday, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to people, the anniversary is coming up or the birthday is coming up and I don't know what to do. And again, I just sort of feel like when something terrible has happened to you and you are relatively helpless to the, the emotion that's going to come, we do better to say like, you're going to get wet it's a storm. So what I say to people is you can tap dance all you want. This day is going to suck. If you would like, you could just put your head under the covers and, and live through the day. It won't always feel like this. It won't always feel like this. And so if the best care for you today is literally to survive it, you'll never have to do a ninth birthday again. You're going to have to do the 10th and the 11th, but that's a year from now. Right. And maybe you'll have an idea. Maybe you'll want to, I don't know, throw a party or dinner or watch Netflix or whatever. But if the best we can do today is survive the day, people are mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, I spent the day drinking, you know, after on my wife's anniversary. I'm like, good job. Well done. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> you got through it. You know, That's I, all think, that matters. I think
0: we put this sort of, there's so much pressure on the idea that there's a, that we as the grievers Are doing something wrong, or we are a problem because we are having totally understandable and reasonable and totally, you know, upsetting things upset you. That's the way it is. And I understand that's totally disruptive, right? When you were talking about Ivan wanting to listen to the song, I have five siblings. I'm always careful about testing the waters. Like, are you having a mom moment? Am I going to interrupt your life by telling you I'm having a mom moment? You can't do that with kids. But I do think, you know, most of what we're doing is surviving the feelings and trusting that it's not always going to feel like it does right now and finding sort of your safe harbors and your people. I I have a little running ticker of like, what is your metaphor that works for you? Are you Are you a raincoat? Are you a boat? Are you a fire truck? Like, what is it that you think is the image? But I mean, really, we're all just saying the same thing, which is like, we are growing our capacity to do this. And right. it's, it's impossible. It's like, it's like a restaurant where the short, you know, you need a short order cook. And so you need to become a short order cook right now.
1: Right. And
0: in, you know, in order to keep people alive and it, it's impossible. And yet, and yet you're doing it,
1: you're yeah. doing it. You know, the, the people say a lot to me, oh, you're so strong. And, and it's like funny because I'm like, on the one hand, I know that, you know what I mean? Trust me. I know that the fact that I am still living and breathing after losing my son, but it's also kind of like, well, what, what choice did I have? I guess I just never felt like I had a choice. I have another child that I need to take care of, you know, but then I realized I do have a choice. I did have a choice. And while sometimes I feel like this sort of is the harder choice, you know, I mean, I see people grieve so differently and I say it all the time. And I mean, this: I will never judge the way a parent grieves. I know. Because it is, you got to drink all day long. Yeah. If you, whatever, you can't get out of bed. I mean, trust me, whatever you got to do to get by. And And the path I chose probably wasn't everybody's path. And that's okay, because um, it's just what worked for me. And as long as things keep landing in my lap and opportunities keep happening, that's what I'm going to glean because it it does make my heartbeat. And I feel like, you know what, I never thought that this was going to be my journey or my path, but I feel that I'm being called to do this kind of work. And it's hard because society doesn't want to talk about death in general and they definitely don't want to talk about child death no but you know I've had so many people private message me and say thank you for being so honest and sharing because it makes me a better mom it makes me think differently about things it puts my life into perspective and and I'm like, well, at first, I would rather not always have to be the one whose life I is know. like so horrendous. That it's like, well, I
0: guess I love that. that. Right. Thank you. I'd rather not be your poster child, but that was kind. It was a right.
1: Great. But, you know, it's like, well, this is my story, you know? And, you know, it's a story of love and triumph. And, you know, I feel like what was intended to take us down many times, many different times. I guess this is where my stubbornness takes off, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it is true, right? Like when people say you're strong, I think again, part of what, part of what feels like sometimes is inside that sentence is that dismissiveness of like, I could never do what you could do. People who come to me and say, I want to be, I want to be supportive. What's confusing about being supportive? And they'll bring up that sentence. You know, I told my friend, I thought she was really strong and she got really mad. And I try to explain it. Listen, there's a distancing thing that we feel when we're in grief, there's a distancing thing. And we kind of hate you sometimes when we can feel you distance from us. We just are like, fuck you. You get to distance from us, but we don't get at it. (laughs) If you go on grief and loss sports, which I know you've been on anger is the thing that I think people find really, really startling because they don't know themselves to be an, an angry person. And when I'm doing work with people, what I talk about is, listen, that anger's is just there to protect you. It's a cover story. It's trying to keep you from having to be in too much sadness yeah. and you know, whatever, be mad at the guy at Starbucks. Think that little old lady from church is a bitch. It's fine. But I think it's, it's another way of feeling dysregulated, right? Which is, this is not a feeling that I normally have had to have in my life. And I hear you, but you need it now. And that's, you move to a cold village and you got to wear a coat. You don't really have a choice about it. I do think there is so much strength in what you're able to share with us because you only need to go to the memoir section of Barnes and Noble to read stories about people's parents who went to bed and did not come out. And, you know, I, I'm hoping to have someone that I know on the podcast who probably spent a decade, he's sober now, but after re, you know, a huge tragedy, no one could possibly b- blame him. The best tool he had in his toolkit was to be completely obliterated every single day. And yeah. in my mind, you survived. Like, I get it. That's yeah. not, that's not the way I would have wished for you, but who the hell am I to tell anyone how to survive. And so in grief work, that's part of what I'm doing. You know, people are like, what's the best book? What's the good instruction manual? It's a little bit like sexuality in the sense that like, I can't tell you how to be a sexual being. You got to grow that part of yourself so that it works for you. And I can talk to you about how people do that. And I can give you examples and show you a movie and, you know, here's a book, but really it's for you to grow into your own space. And that's the part about grieving That I'm really trying to just advocate is like, we need people to understand that grief is totally normal. We're all headed in the same direction. Obviously not everyone is going to have your story. Your story has a particular tragic component to it, but there are going to be people with stories that are similar to yours and they are also going to have to do this impossible task. That you have done and are doing and will continue to do with your son and your husband for the rest of your life. And just like memoir and just like documentary, part of what we're doing when we're sharing these stories is allowing someone else to say, okay, this woman seems to be living through this somehow. Maybe I'll borrow, maybe I'll try, maybe I'll go see if I raise money for childhood cancer. Maybe that will also feel good to me. Possibly it won't might have to come up with your own stuff, but it's that desire to want to live forward with grief rather than stay totally here in the traumatic moment of what happened.
1: Well, nobody's equipped to lose their child. No one. And no one. And so, you know, what I've learned and what I've shared, and I pray that none of my other friends, besides one of my friends who already did lose their child, Oh. Uh, that no one else I know has to do that. But even if what you've learned from me can help you deal with someone else's, whether it's not a child or whatever, you know, because yes, every loss is different, but there is also a lot of similarity in kind of what people need and how you can help learn the things that aren't necessary to say. you know, one of my favorite things that my friend said, is we're all just walking each other home yeah you know and it's like you know we can learn so much from each other and everybody's story is different but if you can take something from someone's situation and learn and become better then it wasn't in vain you know and I really didn't intend on being a, a teacher necessarily I'm definitely an advocate
0: yeah. uh, and
1: always have been but I feel like in a way I'm like well I've sort of kind of accidentally taught people some things, and and i'm I'm proud of that because it's been hard, and I don't sugarcoat. I think we all kind of only put a a real small snippet of what is really happening. But being honest and open and and vulnerable has has benefited me much more than trying to put on the facade like this is easy or okay or it sucks.
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and part of what I appreciate about your writing and the way you talk about it is you say it sucks and you say, I'm doing these activities. Here's how I'm in emotional pain. And here's how I'm living forward with grief. Before we started recording, you said something about getting some advice about exercise and I like to give as many examples. You also said something about writing. So will you just talk about how e- either one or both of those things yeah. supported you as, as activities in your grief, yeah. the verbing of grief, the grieving mm-hmm.
1: element? Yes. Yeah. So our grief shared with us that exercise is like taking a 10 milligram Zoloft. And that really stuck with me because I always have enjoyed exercising, but I definitely needed some sort of an antidepressant. I don't drink or smoke. And again, whatever people have to do, that's just a personal choice. Exercising really became, you know, movement is good for you. But I always say that exercise is just as much for my mind as it is for my body, I was doing Pilates for quite a while and then my body kind of started getting used to that and I wanted to kind of challenge myself a little bit more so I started doing kind of like boot camp style classes and it's so funny because if I'm doing something hard I just like close my eyes and I'm like I can do anything for 30 seconds that's like the thing I tell myself all the time I'm like I've lived through my child dying I can do a plank for 30 seconds (laughs) you know and so then it's like then I'm like, wow, I'm like keeping up with these 20 year olds. Like I, cl- I close my eyes and I do it. And then I look around, and I'm like, holy smokes, like I'm really doing this. Imagine if you and said so- that out loud, I can do a plank for 30 seconds. <laughs> my kid already died. Can you imagine <laughs> what the exercise class would? Oh my God. <laughs> Whew, well, nobody, I a- I, I, I don't, freaking them out. people are people, you know, it's hard because I don't always know if people are like sort of nervous to approach me because right. they know it's hard. Yeah. I always think that's the case. I'm sort of self-conscious about it because like, it's like, it's, I, it's hard to kind of be like the Debbie Downer of the situation, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Oh, she's the one who child. I'm still a person, you know, like, and again, you can't touch it, you know, any of that kind of stuff, but I definitely sort of feel like, because I feel like I wear my loss like a badge in a way. I feel like people maybe don't approach me. I don't know. But yeah, the other thing that I've definitely done that has been very therapeutic is writing and just telling my truth. I do it for myself. I really, the writing is for me, but I always feel like if it can help somebody else, then great. And it seems like it does. You know, like I said, I just don't, it, it was never a plan for me, but well, maybe I can do this. It always feels good to be good at something, you know, and, and realize that your words are effective. Your writing
0: is really beautiful. We talk in grief mates a lot about writing, dancing, painting, anything that's creative. There's the process of it, which really is just for you. You know, how many people Mm -hmm. are at home singing in the shower? No, one's asking them to be on American Idol, but singing in the shower is meaningful. I have a woman right now who's that's, that's her primary grief work. She's taken like three showers a day going through all of the music and the songs that are meaningful to her, but she, her voice is not, she, no one's going to say, Hey, let's do this professionally. So there's the process element of it. And then there's also the product element of it. And with writing, not everybody gets to that part where someone's going to publish it, but It is when, what I think about it, when we go back to that concept of you really do have to have your narrative, you really do have to have a story that you can live with that doesn't jack you up every time you tell it. I, I often assign it even when people are like, I'm not a great writer because it's a way to memorize your story. It's a way I always say, it's like picking up a stone off the beach and turning it over and holding it and describing it and looking at it and looking at every little pivot and divot so that you know what it is, so that if you put it back on the beach, you could find it. And I think the mind feels a relief when it knows you know the story and the story has been captured somewhere. It doesn't have to turn that stone over so many times and it allows us some of that moving forward. I trust that you have the story. I wrote the actual event of learning that my mom died, I think 70 times. It was just so present and now I don't write it anymore. And I don't know, sometimes when I go back, there's, it's a, it is a chapter in my memoir. And when I go to it, I'm like, oh, that's not the version I thought was in the book or, oh, this one doesn't have that one detail. It doesn't actually matter. Any one of the versions, because I know that story now and I don't have to go back and tag back to it with so much pain. And so that's sort of the therapeutic piece. And then there's that piece of when you share it out, people come back and say, this was meaningful to me. If people are interested in reading your writing, how would they do that? I can put it in the show notes, but what's the, or if they would like to talk to you or, and I'm not offering that by the way, you know, I am really responsive when people come onto my website and chat with me. I know for other people, that's not good for their health, but If people would want to know more either about the cancer foundation work or your, your own personal grief work and story, what, what's the best way to do that?
1: So I have, I have a website for the foundation, which is lovelikejackson.org. And I believe there's a way that you can contact me like through email on there. I had been an advocate for St. Baldrick's and decided to have a St. Baldrick in memory of Jackson. He had osteosarcoma, which on the list of under-researched cancers is actually very low on the list. So we established something called a hero fund, which every year we have to raise a minimum of $10,000. And that research money goes directly to osteosarcoma research. And the first year I thought, oh man, I hope we can raise $10,000. That seemed like unachievable. And so February 1, 2020, right before the pandemic, we had the first St. Baldrick's event and we ended up with 73 people shaving their head and we raised $79,000. Oh my which God. Which I I know, I still can't believe it. It's totally crazy. Like totally crazy. And then I was like, wait a second, I like doing this and I'm apparently pretty effective at fundraising. So then over the pandemic, I started the foundation called Love Like Jackson. And what we decided to do is we fund art, music, and play therapy for siblings. Siblings are called the Forgotten Grievers a lot, and we benefited so greatly by having the... Therapy paid for by a local foundation. I don't want finances to be a barrier yeah. because the reality is therapy is important, but it can be expensive. I don't know that at that time if I could have budgeted $500 a month to totally. pay for that therapy. It was just such a blessing to us that I was like, if that's the one thing I can do to help just relieve just a little bit of a burden for a family. And so that has just been absolutely beautiful and just it warms my heart so much. And I ended up sharing about the foundation on a local um, mom group. And right away, I had one mom reach out and I was like, I win. Like, right. I don't even care. I'm it's not one more than do... I had before. Amazing. Right. And I, it doesn't matter to me to have a hundred. You know, people that we're serving. Maybe eventually, but right now, I know that we can make a difference in one person's life. I know what that difference can be. Both of those things are just my heart's work, and I just am so so proud. And my husband says all the time he sees that Jackson is working through me, and and it really is a way that I feel very connected to Jackson mm. when I'm doing that kind of work. I have a background in social services, um, but I never could have thought about running my own foundation or it's like the things that I feel passionate about just kind of got married to each other. And then it was like, wow, like I get to do something that like is so meaningful and it's important, you know,
0: calling, it's a calling, right? I mean, that's the, it is your, your, your story is extraordinary on every level. It is what people can't see is that you've been smiling through this whole conversation. (laughs) And I, you know, I know, I know that this has been just wildly, unbelievably brutal. And I appreciate you What our listeners also don't know is that your husband has some health stuff going on right now. And we, we almost canceled. I just, I, there's so much grace in being able to sit with you and I am so grateful and I know we're going to stay connected and continue working, but I also just know that while watching your Facebook page, I'm going to continue to see so much of this goodness multiplying. I know it's trite to say you're an inspiration and you're so strong, but you are both of those things and those that doesn't include the fact that I can just also see that you are a grieving parent and carrying untenable, inexplicable, impossible grief and loss. And I just, I just adore you. I just am so grateful for this conversation. I know it's going to mean a lot to our listeners. Um, so I, I, I
1: truly am so honored. I really am. I mean, I just, I, I love how we got connected. When we did that one day on the grief, grief mates, where it was like, you asked about the smell. And I felt like I was going to vomit when I said what it reminded me of. And then, you know, it was like, wow, that ended up being kind of like a part of my processing. And, and so it was like, it was just such an unexpected you know, hard, but also I was so thankful because I was like, I didn't know I was going to like experience so much while doing that. But, you know, I just, I'm trying to learn how to move forward and to carry both my grief and still have joy. And it's not easy. And sometimes I don't, and sometimes I can't, but, you know, I feel like my other, Son, Ivan's life has been rocked so much that I want to do everything I can to still try to give him a good life, and and I think we are. And you are. I'm so well, I'm proud so, of him.
0: I'm so grateful to have to to witness it from the side, and I'm glad that Griefmates has been helpful. It really is designed. The behind the curtain is that I've been a trauma therapist for 20 years. The prompts are designed to sort of provoke you a little bit, and help the process of moving some of the grief energy, you know, from wherever it is, if we move it 1%, then it's 1% that's moved. Um, right. And I think a lot of what you're showing us is just the activities and the action around what it looks like when people are working hard to learn how to carry the grief, whether it's for your son or yourself or right. all, you know, both. So I'm going to be thinking about you guys and we will be Thank back you. in touch Thanks for being here with us today, hearing from Carrie about her beautiful son Jackson and the legacy of loss and how she's living it forward in her life today. Please come over and check our show notes out if you want to get more information on Carrie and her work and come over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. It'll help other folks like you who are interested in hearing more about people navigating grief. Thanks so much. And for those of you who've asked, the guitar music is written and performed by my younger brother, Brendan Reardon, who is a wild talent and incredibly generous and gives his sister music clips when she says she's starting a podcast. Thanks, everyone. Mm